Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Mary Robinette Cole, author of The Relentless Moon, a lady astronaut novel to be published by Tor, July 14th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks so much for having me. So this is the third book in the series, and I have to apologize. I haven't read uh, either of the previous two books, but uh, the series in general, how did, uh, consider, you know, writers always have a lot of ideas bubbling around. What made this particular series rise up above the rest and get written? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Um, it is it is too many books, not enough time, uh, both with reading and writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be honest um, that that I had turned in a bunch of different pitches to my uh, editor. Uh, this was one of them. There were other things like you know a nineteen twenties depression era werewolf novel and and all sorts of other things. And I believe, uh, if I am not mistaken, that probably the thing that made this rise to the top is the pure crass commercialism <laughs> reason that uh the uh, novelette in this universe, uh the Lady Astronaut of Mars, won a Hugo Award. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that that is not the uh the the lovely artistic answer you were probably looking for. <laughs> <laughs> But, I feel like it's important to be realistic. I mean, it's still it's still a work of art, you know, regardless of yeah. why that one, you know, this one got was written. But um, okay, yeah. so so it sounds like you dabble, you do fantasy and science fiction, and um, that's correct. I I do I write kind of all over the map, uh, fantasy and science fiction. Uh, in the novels, they've all tended to be um, historical in some way. Mm-hmm. So you know, this one is set in nineteen fifty. Uh, actually, this one is 1963. The first book in the series is 1952. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I like playing around with that kind of thing. And it's an alternate history kind of kind of series. Right. So it begins, uh, as I mentioned, in 1952 when I slam an asteroid into Washington, D.C., mm. which was not wish fulfillment when I wrote it. <laughs> um, and... Uh, that kicks off the space program fast and early and with an international effort at a time when computers are still predominantly women. Mm-hmm. So if you want to send a computer into space, you have to send a woman. I, I often describe this as Apollo era science fiction that's women centered, mm-hmm. um, or, uh, like punch card punk. Punch card punk. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not like f- steampunk, but. I, it's a term I made up. So steampunk people know about, but punch card, um, with steampunk, the power that is driving things mm-hmm. is steam. And with this, the power that's driving things is that we are in the punch card era of computing that's just run up on the cusp of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Um, it, it, it was very, that's the idea I had, but it's very interesting. I hadn't heard it before, but that's, that's pretty cool. Cool. So tell us about the uh, this third book. I guess you can touch on what the first two are were about without revealing anything, and then where does this third one take place? Sure. So the first two follow Elma York, uh, who is a computer, um, so she's a math whiz. Uh, she's also a pilot. And it's really the first book is about the push to get off of the Earth um, 
And then the second book is about the mission to Mars. So book three is a parallel novel. The Relentless Moon is a parallel novel to the second book. Mm -hmm. Uh, They take place um, simultaneously, but it's what's happening on Earth and the moon while the first Mars expedition is going on. You can actually read it as a standalone. I I work very hard to make sure that you can step into my series at uh, all of my series at any point. Mm -hmm. Ideally, from my point of view, you would probably read uh, Calculating Stars first, but then I think it's it's up to you if you want to read Relentless Moon or The Faded Sky next. Um, It you know, Calculating Stars and Faded Sky, which are book one and two, are designed to as a duology. They're meant to be read together, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you can actually just hop straight to the third. So I see in the blurb, and again, you know, we don't want to reveal any spoilers, but it talks about um, an overheated political situation, riots and sabotage plague the space program. Um, yeah. Is the Earth, is the country falling apart in this third one? or? So what's interesting about the way we react to um, to a crisis is that there's some fairly uh, fairly consistent patterns. We're, we're seeing them right now. Um, it's it's an interesting time for this book to come out. <laughs> um, the the country is uh, is split on the the way to handle the problem of the the planet overheating. Uh, one of the things that will happen with a meteorite strike is we, we are very familiar with what happens when you've got a land based strike. But if you have a water strike, or specifically a shallow water strike which is what actually happens in these books. Um, you eject a ton of water into the upper atmosphere and it doesn't precipitate out uh, at the same rates that it does when it's in the lower atmosphere where we see most of our clouds. So it acts as a greenhouse gas and that can cause a runaway greenhouse effect, which is what's happening to the planet. So all of that <laughs> means that what's happening is that people are realizing that the space program cannot be the only solution. There will be people who inevitably cannot get off the planet, uh, either because they aren't from the right socioeconomic background to qualify for, uh, for astronaut training, or because they have uh, medical issues that would kill them on launch. So there's a lot of unrest around that. And what we see based on, you know, in, historically is that there are kind of two ways that people will react to a crisis. Uh, I mean, you know, or I should say two ends of a spectrum. One and the first immediate response that people have is that they want to help. And then the other one is that they will become fearful and want to protect themselves mm-hmm. and, and what they see as theirs and, and sort of which direction society goes in in those two areas depends on on who is setting the tone so in the first book we have a, a president who is he's a quaker he's uh he was a secretary of agriculture and happened to be out of the capital when the uh, meteorite hit and so he is very um Oh yeah, no, this is a problem and, and let's solve this problem. And he's very, uh, let's everybody pull together. In the, these books, in the Relentless Moon, um, it's, you know, 11 years later, so we have a different president now. He's, uh, m- much more of a hawk. He's much more of a, let's solve this, 
uh, via military, uh, let's protect, you know, it's, it's very much an America first kind of situation. Mm. And that is feeding on the fears that people have and, uh, and causing some of that, uh, that unrest and rioting. I, I think anytime you've got, you've got fear or anger, you, you will channel it. Uh, uncertainty as well. All of those are, are a form of energy. Uh, and so you'll, you'll channel it and you will channel it into whatever kind of model you have been presented as that this is, this is the appropriate way to do it. And when it's an unprecedented situation, you're much more likely to look for guidance from someone, um, someone at the top. Mm -hmm. Will you call this a hard science fiction novel? series yes <laughs> yes <Okay. laughs> um yes very much so uh i worked with um astronauts uh folks from nasa um rocket scientists from other areas uh doctors geologists like basically if there is a piece of science in there that i mention and it affects, especially if it affects the plot. But if I, if I talk about it, it is as accurate as I can make it. Mm -hmm. If it, uh, is inaccurate, then I make sure that it is, or, or I'm uncertain, then I, I make sure it never goes anywhere near the plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, or, or it's not a plot point. For instance, um, the journey to Mars, you, you have to solve the radiation shielding. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's a must. I have no idea how they do that. So the radiation shielding will never fail in these books. <laughs> I just proceed as if they have solved it. And then we don't talk about what that solve is. Okay. Okay. So what percentage, so for the series in general, and also this third book, um, how much takes place on earth versus out in space? So the first book is mostly earth earth based. The uh faded sky is pretty much all space all the time. Mm. Um and uh Relentless Moon is is likewise. We I think uh go to we leave the planet, I think chapter sixteen out of forty some chapter I can't remember how many look, I've got I've got a copy of the book sitting next to me, <laughs> which uh no, it's uh fifty three chapters. So we, we get we get into space real real fast proportionally speaking. Okay. I'm speaking with Mary Robinette Cole, author of The Relentless Moon. You can find more information on her work at Mary dot com or ladyastronautclub.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. How did you deal with, um, you know, gender inequality in the workplace and in general in this book? Is it how it was in the 50s, or is it different? It's a little different. Um, that's one of the reasons that I set it in the 50s, because of the um, the fact that we hadn't replaced computers with mechanical things. Uh, so they were still women, so they were very heavily involved in the space industry. The way it works is um, that it, they, are, they are more advanced... Uh, along their timeline than we are, but they're also beginning to get into the, um, the pushback 
which is one of the things that happens anytime you have a, a progressive movement, you'll, you'll get a, a pushback. So they're, they're just in the beginning of the pushback where, um, where they're trying to put people back into, into the boxes that they were in. The, the biggest thing that I do is I just don't ignore the gender issues. Um, like it's, it's lovely to think that it's a product of the 1950s, but a lot of the, sexist things that my characters encounter are things that astronauts face today mm-hmm. um, or that people in other not not even just in stem but in in other fields face the um, the antagonist is make based on someone I used to work with mm-hmm. um, well the antagonist for uh, the, the the first two books mm-hmm. um, so some several of the things are you know just there but uh, like when when they were first contemplating women in the program in the real world, uh, two of the things that they were called uh, by in in actual newspapers, like you know, in official pub- publications on multiple occasions, are uh, astronet and glamournaut. Hmm. Astronet. Yeah. Oh, I astronaut. see. I, yeah, I see. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Astronauts and astronets. Yeah. Yeah. Having to different, yeah, I understand the yeah. problem with differentiating and trying to suggest something with that. Yeah. So, did you mention all the research you've done for the book, or was there other stuff you had to research that uh, we haven't touched on yet? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, I can I can talk about my research for literally days. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> like, I, I went to the neutral buoyancy lab. Um, I, uh, I've, I've gotten to, uh, try on spacesuits, um, or, or parts of spacesuits, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and Adam Savage let me try on his, um, replica, uh, Apollo spacesuit, um, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a really cool, it's a really cool thing. Um, and then just a ton of reading. Mm-hmm. Basically, anytime there's a, an opportunity to go someplace and talk about space. Um, I will. I, and also like seeing launches. One of the things that's killing me right now is that the, and and it's like, I, I, I say that and acknowledge that it is not literally killing me. It's just merely disappointing. (laughs) Um, but, uh, the, uh, perseverance Rover is launching, during my book tour and my publisher had arranged for me originally to go to Florida to watch the launch. It's going to Mars. Mm -hmm. And, um, that is, you know, it's still going to Mars. I am clearly not going to Florida right now. (laughs) Yeah. That is a shame. That's, uh, do you have, so this access you have to these resources, is it because, of your writing or is there uh, some other uh, way that you're able to access? It's much easier when you have uh, to, to get some of the access. Um, But honestly, it's mostly just writing and asking. Mm -hmm. NASA is very open and really wants people to have good science literacy. So a lot of the stuff is just me emailing someone and saying, Hey, is there someone I can talk to? Like I got, I've been uh, corresponding with, Bill Berry, who's NASA's chief historian. Mm. And I just wrote to someone at the science department and was like, is there anyone there who can talk to me? And they hooked me up 
with Gray Hetloma, who's in uh, communications, and he connected me to Bill Barry, and then connected me to a bunch of other other people at NASA who are like, yeah, yeah, I'll totally talk to you about being a geologist who specializes in Mars. Yeah, yeah, it's been really, it's been really lovely how open people are about sharing their knowledge. Yeah. So writing a book is really an excuse to just get into these uh, places yeah. and talk to people. <laughs> accurate statement. Full on accurate. <laughs> um, so what are some of the, um, what, what are some of the things that just inspire you as a writer, you know, books, music, uh, shows, whatever. So a lot of it is shows, uh, nonfiction, um, particularly in the areas that I tend to write, uh, will often spark a lot of story ideas. Oddly, one of the things that will sometimes really spark a story idea is watching a show that is badly done hmm. because I get so annoyed with like, but they should have done and they should have done that and they should have done this and they should have. And I'm like, well, you know what? Instead of complaining that I could just do those things. Yeah. So you don't want to mention some of the, <laughs> some of these shows that bother you. You don't have to. Just... Okay. No, I, I will give one example because, uh, because I, I know it will be taken in, um, in, in good, uh, in good humor. Andy Weir, who's, who's lovely, uh, in his Artemis, his book Artemis, which is it, it, like he, he, he does, he does the work. Um, but there are also places where I'm like, Oh, Andy. Um, <laughs> and one of them is he, he had this thing about how on the moon, you never got hot coffee because water boiled before reaching, um, because the, the pressure is so low that, that water boils before it gets hot mm. and i'm like okay so great that's really cool and that that is actually the way water would boil in in this low pressure however there's a thing called a pressure kettle um <laughs> and and you can you know like people who live in high altitudes run into this problem uh there, there are ways you know pressure cookers this is a this is a known technology that has been around for really long time they they would just have pressure kettles and pressure cookers on the moon in order to solve that so i 100 percent put a pressure kettle into my novel specifically because i was annoyed by that when i read it in artemis uh, that's funny um but yes i know it's uh everyone's trying to teach everyone's trying to do their best i think yeah yeah so um yeah and it's, it's just, it's a different experience. Like I know that what a pressure cooker is because my grandmother and my mom use them all the time. So if you don't, if you're not around them, sure. Yeah. Why, why would you know that thing existed? But yeah. I was like, I'm like, hello, I have a way to solve that. Yeah. I mean, that's the scariest. My characters get hot coffee. <laughs> <laughs> <They have. laughs> yeah. I guess that's the scariest thing. Like not even knowing that there is the question that you need to ask or. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, like you say, yeah. you have the experience of it, so you think of it. Um, yeah. That's one of the things that I try to do is I try to make sure that I have a very wide range of people who are beta reading for me. Hmm. So that's been like, they've saved me on so many things that I thought, hi, oh, yeah, I've thought this through. And then I'm like, nope, <laughs> you have not thought that through. Or the thing that I love even more is, uh, you know, you missed an opportunity here. Uh, and that's those are the things that get really exciting was, um, like there's a go on i, I was going to ask if there was any scientific principle that um that you weren't aware of that 
kind of that when you did become aware of had forced you to change something important in the book or um a little bit uh one of the i mean it's it's something that i was aware of i just didn't think about how it would play out um the in in the novel it i do not think that it is a spoiler to say about a book that takes place in space that there's a problem with a rocket um <laughs> and uh and in the the scene as i originally wrote it um the rocket received uh, a, a lateral impact, mm-hmm. uh, so an impact coming in from the side, and the the astronaut who was proofing it for me is like, yeah, the rocket wouldn't actually survive that uh, because it's not designed to take lateral stress; it's designed for vertical stress it, because it's it's all about pushing it off the ground, and, and so all, all of the tension and stuff on it, everything that it's designed to resist. Mm-hmm. is the force of gravity going through the column of the, the rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that's coming in on the side, the, the walls of a, a rocket are incredibly thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it would just, uh, it would rupture, and then because it's loaded with, still loaded with fuel, uh, you would you would get an explosion from that. I'm like, well, what if I vent? And he's like, yeah, but you've you've still got atmosphere in it. Mm-hmm. So that, that sudden pressure, you would still like any of, any of these scenarios, you're going to get an explosive event. Mm-hmm. And all of the, like all of that stuff was stuff that when he said it, I'm like, Oh yeah, no, totally. Yep. Mm-hmm, see that. Uh huh. But, um, but just had not thought about it in quite that context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause you see, you see ships, it, getting hit from the side so often in media that I just assumed, and I know better than this, mm-hmm. um, but I, I just internalized that that was a thing you could do to a ship. Mm-hmm. But there, I mean, there are so many factors involved that, um, yeah, like you say, everyone seems to do it. And then, yeah, it's, I mean, there's, <laughs> it's amazing how many different principles that there are out there that people just don't realize. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Does the book have any sort of soundtrack or aesthetic that you would apply to it? It uh, it is very much a spy thriller. Mm-hmm. So um, the honestly, though, the soundtrack that I was uh, had running uh, while I was writing it was I had just seen Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. and um, the soundtrack was completely stuck in my head, but also. Like that was the kind of energy and um, sort of active woman protagonist that I wanted. Mm. But I also cannot write when there are words in music. So I have a uh, all instrumental recreated the um, Captain Marvel soundtrack with just inter- instrumental tracks, mm. uh, which is what I was writing to. Oh, wow. uh, it's very, it's really high energy intensive, um, but it's all like strings. Um, hmm, okay. The feel of the thing is much more like a 1950s detective novel, uh, thriller thing. It's, it's more of a, um, like a, a Hitchcock suspense kind of thing. Okay. Does this, does this novel wrap up the series or is there, are you planning to, to write more on this? There's, um, this is a, Trick question. Uh, this novel works as a standalone. You can read this novel and nothing else. Um, it, it has a satisfying ending to this novel. But there is a fourth book called 
the Martian contingency, mm-hmm. which is um, all Mars all the time, and uh, takes place after both this and the Faded Sky. Mm-hmm. Okay. As far as um, how you do your writing, is there anything out of the ordinary you do to prepare drafts or outlines or, or your final? I think the thing that I do that I don't see a lot of other authors doing is that I like a lot of people reading along with me as I'm going. I come out of live theater. And so I'm used to having an audience to a lot around so that I can gauge how things are working, Hmm. whether or not they are. And so it's very useful for me to have, um, have a lot of people reading along as I go. So my process is that I'll uh, like I'll write a chapter um, and then I have uh, my ideal reader who gets it immediately. Um, that's Alessandra Meekum, who's also my assistant. Mm-hmm. And everybody else is about two chapters behind. So that means that when I write chapter three, I give them chapter one. And what I've found is that for my own brain and process, that that works really well to allow me to be far enough ahead that um, if they, uh, that I can, you know, if I've discovered something in writing chapter three, that I can go ahead and put it into chapter one before they read it, so that it's far enough ahead that I can, you know, kind of fold in revisions, but not so far ahead that if they have an unexpected reaction to chapter one, that I'm, like, deeply committed to wherever it is that I am in the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it helps me keep from going down a wrong path and uh, and allows me to have much more of a give and take and get a sense of how the pacing is playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want any feedback on like language, um, but for the uh, how the story is playing, it's very helpful for me. Mm-hmm. How has your approach to writing changed over time? When I started, I coming out of theater, I had a very solid grasp on character, and it was almost all internalized stuff because I'd been doing it for so long. Um, Plot was harder for me because everything that I'd been doing, although I was familiar with the audience and how they responded, I was always working with someone else's framework, someone else's script. So the thing that I've worked on hardest has been plot. And until recently, all of my books had to be uh, rigorously plotted before I started. The point, the thing that I've been looking for is, um, with, with all of the, the kind of skills that I've acquired is trying to get to a point where, um, it's internalized so that I'm not thinking about it. The example that I use sometimes is, um, when I was learning to do puppets, we had to, you have to learn to make the puppet walk. And so my mentor had me just walk the puppet around the table mm-hmm. for like 45 minutes while we chatted. And he was looking for the point when I could, I no longer had to watch the puppet and could carry on a conversation it still continued to walk smoothly mm-hmm. and then he had me do the same thing going the other direction to teach my other hand but the point was that he wanted me to have walking be so natural that i didn't have to think about it um in the same way that i don't have to think to walk with my own body so that when i was on stage i could just think about the art and not think about the technique and that's what I'm trying to do with my writing is internalize a lot of these uh, um, these processes and tools so that I'm not thinking about them. So I'm, I'm trying, 
now to uh, write more intuitively um, and to not plot as much out. Uh, it slows me down a lot, but what it also what I was I was worried that I was in danger of having novels that were uh, formulaic. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's anything wrong with a formula, but I do think that that one of the things that is exciting about any particular artist or, or work of art in any medium are the the unique connections that happen in their own brain, and so I wanted to um, I, I wanted my my plots to be less technique driven and more kind of art feeling driven. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm try that's, that's a thing that I am in process with now. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's a little scary mm -hmm. <laughs> still. No, no, I understand. So I was curious. So you mentioned your puppeteering work. Um, I've actually mm -hmm. interviewed a couple puppeteers, uh, oh, in the cool. past, Hugh Spite and Jim Martin, if you know, Gary Gnu and, um, Hugh Spite. Oh, What's that? I said, oh, lovely. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's, it's really, uh, fascinating the passion, you know, they bring to their work and also, mm -hmm. you know, just dissuading people of the idea that it's just, you know, moving these little puppets around that you really, you know, you're really in the role. Yeah. It is absolutely acting. Um, it's just that you're acting with an inanimate object rather than your own body. But other what other than that, it's still how do I move in order to convey this to something, you know, to an audience? Uh, what is my motivation? You know, we have some additional tools that a uh, meat actor does not have, mm -hmm. but it's still just acting. Mm -hmm. When you were young, were you um, creating like worlds for puppets and and playing that out? Puppets didn't come into my life until high school. Mm. Um, I I was one of those kids who wanted to do everything. Mm. So I did, you know, I did theater, I did art, I was music, I wrote, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, like, really, I wanted to do all of the things. Mm. If, uh, yeah, I, I was lucky that my mom didn't force me to pick something. Um <laughs> And then discovered puppetry, and it was the closest I had found to anything that combined all of the things that I like to do. So I did that for about 25 years-ish. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Mary Robinette Cole, author of The Relentless Moon. You can find more information on her work at maryrobinettecole.com or ladyastronautclub.com. If you like this podcast so far, Please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So I was going to ask if there's other work apart from that that... Uh, non-writing work that may have influenced how and what you write my uh, i was an art major in college actually um which taught the same thing about separating techniques and internalizing one technique at a time hmm. which has been really useful for me and what i often find 
is that some of the things that I learned in art school not just help me as a philosophy, but that frequently I can give someone the same thought processes that I went through in art school to, uh, say, an engineer. And that it's that that process of creating and problem solving is very much the same from, you know, skill to skill. It's that the, the skills are different. Mm-hmm. But the way people engage with them, the, the ways that you have to break it down, the ways you, you, you think, uh, sometimes critically and, and very like, word oriented where you step through the process and it's really this rigid narrowly focused process where it's like well i'll do this and i'll do that and then i'll do that you know i'll do my uh underdrawing and then you know or my i'll do my thumbnail sketch and then uh my large sketch uh and then my underdrawing and and then i'm gonna paint Mm -hmm. and that in in all of these things that there's there's that and then there's this other thing that happens on a totally nonverbal level where you cannot, if someone asks you, how did you come up with that? You're like, I don't know. My brain just presented it to me and here it is. And I love it too, but I also don't know that I should really be taking credit for it. And, and that, that happens to uh, engineers. It happens to mathematicians. It, it happens to kind of everybody, this moment of, Ah, ah, ah. The, the back part of my brain just put things together. I just, I don't, I don't have any words to explain how that process happened. So your first, um, novel did, was, was it just one among, was writing at, at that point in time, was writing just one of the many things you were pursuing or did you focus on, you know what, I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to be a writer now. So my first novel, which no one will ever read, <laughs> um, uh, was um, one of many things that I was focused on mm. uh, or interested in. It took me about 10 years to write. Um, then the second novel was because my brother had moved to China. He was with the State Department with his kids. And um, it was before like you could do video calls in, with any kind of reliability. And I was, um, I was also not performing because I'd had a, a severe puppet injury. Mm. Uh, so I was out for about two years and rediscovered how much I enjoyed writing. And that was also, that one was very much a, oh, what's going to happen here? Oh, hey, I forgot that I like this thing. Mm-hmm. After that, it started to become much more deliberate. Mm-hmm where I was trying to figure out how do you do this thing? The advantage, I guess, that I had coming into writing from a, a lifetime spent doing freelancing and working in the arts was that I assume that if it's an art, there's a way to get paid for it. So I immediately started looking into uh, classes and uh, lessons and, and things about, well, like, how what is the publication process like? How, how does one monetize what one writes mm-hmm. so you know being being a puppeteer is a much more physical occupation and writing yes. is sedentary yes um <laughs> is that you know had a an problem? effect on you or <laughs> you know yeah yeah um 
Uh, t- weirdly, uh, in some ways, I feel like writing is much harder on my body than puppetry was. I mean, puppetry was mm-hmm. exhausting, but I was in really good physical shape. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I used to be able to hold the, the speakers that we took into the schools were 50 pounds each, and I carry one in each hand and could, you know, could hold it out uh, with a straight arm. Mm-hmm. Not like not a 90 degree angle from my shoulder, but um, but still. You know, you know, hold hold it pretty far out with a straight arm. Not even think about it, really. Um, I worked a puppet that weighed 125 pounds and walked oh. with it. So, um, so like, and I had injuries, but like in the ways that a, way an athlete has an injury that that there's you know something went wrong, mm-hmm. and uh, and and an accident happened uh, with writing. You know, like I have to think about my posture all the time. I have to make sure that I build exercise into my day. I hate exercising so much. <laughs> Don't like it. Yeah. And uh, but I have to because otherwise it is just me in a chair, and that's like you know I've had more lower back problems since going to writing full time mm-hmm. than I ever had as a puppeteer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. So, so just back to the writing of this book. Um, were there parts, were there any parts you had to take out, you know, because of, um, ed, you know, the editor's comments or, again, the science thing or anything like that? Uh, so, um, I finished this novel and it was 180,000 words long. Oh, uh, that's... <laughs> yeah, it's real long, uh, real, real long. Um, the previous book in this series was 99,000 words, so hmm. <laughs> I had doubled the length of it which was a little surprising to everyone involved, um, especially <laughs> me. It's the longest thing ever. So I cut the heck out of it mm-hmm. to get it down to a more ma- to a, a reasonable length. Um, so I rolled characters together. There are subplots that I cut. Um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff. Uh, I did not fight my editor on anything. Anyt- I was just like, please find things that we can cut. This, is, <laughs> this book is too long. <laughs> Um, so I was going to ask if there was any, anything you, that pained you to remove, but it sounds like you were more than happy to slash and burn the thing down. Yeah. Yeah. I really was. I mean, there's stuff that I'm like, oh, that was a really good scene, but I do not regret its, its absence. Mm -hmm. So do you feel, you know, it seems like, you know, once you impose, every time you impose limitations to a creative endeavor, as painful as it seems at the start, at the end you have something even more interesting than you imagined. Oh, yeah. So yeah. did you find that here? Doing Absolutely. That? Yeah. No, I'm it's working with parameters. I think it forces a different kind of creativity, but yeah, any time that I've been forced to, um, to with something like this, it's like, yeah, no, this is always better. Like when I was in theater and a director would tell me to do something I did not want to, to do i would try to find a way to make it feel true to the character and and make it something that i did want to do Mm -hmm. and those were always it was always better um every now and then like you know every now and then there's a thing where you're like yeah well oh well we gave it a try Mm -hmm. uh but for the most part it's it's better the um that that thing that i talked about with the the lateral impact um on the Mm -hmm. spaceship the scene is so much better because I was um, I was unwilling to to live with. Well, you can probably get away with it mm-hmm. because you know 
because it, it shows up in media so, so much. I'm like, no, no, let's, let's, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. And it, the scene is so much better. It's so much more tense. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. And interesting. Yeah. Um, so a bit of a whimsical question here. Um, when you were young, was there any power technology or fictional setting that you wanted or yearned for? Uh, I was a huge Battlestar Galactica fan. Hmm. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I, I really wanted a Viper <laughs> a lot, <laughs> so much. Uh, it was that and, um, the Dereny books, uh, D-E-R-Y and I, um, were just the, uh, the, the different kinds of magic that, and, and the way magic worked hmm. was so cool and I did not realize how much of an influence it had on me until after I wrote the first novels that I had published and then happened to be doing a partial reread and realized that I had internalized aspects of that magic system Hmm. and hadn't even just like, yeah, but those, those two things are like, yeah. And, and still, I would like, if someone said, Hey, Mary Robinette, would you like a Viper now? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, I would. In fact, I would. Yes. Thank you. So, so you don't have to go into detail, but did you enjoy the remake or? Yeah, I did. Okay. Um, I thought they did great work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really resistant when I found out that they were making Starbuck a woman and then completely fell in love with the character mm-hmm. um, in very different ways than I was with the uh, completely in love with the original Starbuck because I was a teenage girl and you know <laughs> <laughs> the, the hair right? I, I, they had the big, hair, big... the hair yeah the hair yeah <laughs> so I, hair. I did I did actually join uh, the uh, Dirk Benedict fan club mm-hmm. when I was a, when I was a kid because because of that uh which is, I think, the only fan club I joined. Huh, that's that's funny. Um, so you you have talked a little bit about. Um, well, you've talked quite a bit about uh, writing the book. Um, were there any other difficulties in finishing it or or getting it published? Well, no, no difficulties getting it published because it was already sold. Mm-hmm. Um, getting it finished was um challenging we there were a number of things that happened in my personal life Mm. um like that slowed me down in ways that uh were uh were were difficult um i had a family member who had a um a a health thing Mm. uh that had them in and out of the hospital for about three months and i was one of the primary caregivers Mm during that time. Um, and it was right when I was supposed to be finishing the book Hmm. and it was less about not having the time to write and more about just like, I did not have the focus Mm -hmm. to be able to write. Um, I was, I have depression, which I'm pretty open about, but it's, um, there, there are times when you're like, okay, you get to pick, you know, one of three ways that you want me to be functional, Mm -hmm. or or I guess you get to pick, it's actually, you get to pick two, Two, two or three ways that you want me to be functional and, and the third just has to go mm-hmm. and uh, and it was pretty much writing mm-hmm. so when you came back to writing did it feel was it did it, it like take effort 
What's yeah, that? It felt like going back to the gym for the first time. Hmm. Um, it, it, you know, you 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 do build up stamina for this, hmm. um, and you there there are things that you that that come more easily the the more you do them. It's like you know, if you think about the for those of us who do not do math on a daily basis as part of our lives. Um, but if you think about the math that you had to do in, uh, in high school, um, and there was a lot of it that you, you didn't have to, you know, grab, uh, you know, grab your phone and Google, wait, how do I come up with, uh, uh, you, you just, you had learned it and you, you could just do it. Um, even arithmetic to a certain degree. We don't have to do that very often in our heads. Um, but there, there are, there are other things along those lines that if you, if you drill it, it, it comes very easily. And the same is true with writing. It's like, wait, how do I, how do I do description again? Oh, right, 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 right. I want to make sure that not all of my sentences start with the same, uh, noun verb pattern. Okay. Right, right, right. Um, and, and so it's, it's that kind of thing. You know, some of it is silly, stupid, technical stuff and some of it is just um being able to hold a story in your head mm-hmm. so how long do you think it took you to get back in the groove time-wise uh that's tricky um because that that was uh there, there were just there were a lot of things that were going on that year okay. um so it was i would say on and off you know, I, I, probably a couple of months to get back in, I would guess. Uh, like, there's a, there was a certain amount of, um, you know, within the first two weeks, I was when I really started focusing on. It, I'm like, oh, okay, right, right. I remember. I okay, this is this thing. It was probably a couple of months before I'm like, yeah, before I was writing at pace again. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a an example, uh, maybe a, cl- a a better metric for people who aren't familiar with with how this works on a. When I am in good form and, you know, like not having a bad brain day, not having other things going on, um, I, I write around 1500 words in an hour, hmm. uh, roughly. So, you know, sitting down for a two hour session means that I'll get about 2000 words somewhere in that range. Uh, and that's, that's easy and that's very sustainable. Hmm. I was really happy when I was doing three sentences a day. I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to press you on that. I was just interested in, um, in sort of the basics of, of, of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind talking about the, the way my brain works. I'm just trying to talk around the, um, the things that were going on with, uh, family members because those are not my stories to tell. Right. Right. Okay. What's your current writing project? My current writing project is something called The Spare Man, uh, which is a standalone science fiction novel that is on an interplanetary cruise ship, um, and it's a locked room murder mystery uh, with a happily married couple and their small dog. Um, and if anyone is a fan of the Thin Man movies uh, with Nick and Nora Charles and their little dog Asta, and you're thinking that this sounds a lot like The Thin Man in Space, you would not be incorrect and uh that I am heavily influenced by, uh, by, by loving those films. Is that hard science fiction or is that more space? That's, 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 that is space opera. It's like, I I mean, I am, 
like I sat down with a rocket scientist and uh, a, a little actually excuse me not a rocket scientist a rocket engineer mm. um, there's a difference mm. and uh, and designed the spaceship um, so and it it works um, you know it it's like it's it's got you know it's got artificial gravity but it's artificial gravity that's being uh, it, it's using centrifugal force uh, for the artificial gravity. Mm-hmm. The uh, when you go up a level, it gets lighter, it, and the the angles of the floors have to tilt in order to um, to give the appropriate amount of you know appropriate amount of force. So, like we, we thought this sucker through, um, but uh, what is that thing being propelled by? <laughs> I have no idea, no idea at all. Like, if if the science is a plot point, absolutely, totally, definitely, I've at least put some thought into it. Um, how the subdermal cameras work, uh, I know that's a problem we're going to solve. Um, they don't have to fix a subdermal camera, so I just let them have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Where where can people find you online? Social media, web page. Yeah, the easiest thing is actually to go to my webpage, maryrobinettekowal.com, which is very long. Uh, if you don't want to learn how to spell that, you can also go to ladyastronautclub.com, uh, which takes you to my website, but just a slightly different area of it. Um, but once you're on the main page of the site, you can sign up for my newsletter. You can see all of the different social things that I'm on. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I will talk about peeing in space. Um, I tend to live tweet spacewalks. Um, I will also sometimes uh, talk about puppets, but with absolutely no context. <laughs> um, I'll just spell Ra- Mary Robinette Cole quickly for listeners. Um, M-A-R-Y-R-O-B-I-N-E-T-T-E-K-O-W-A-L.com. Do you have any, uh, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final th- thoughts or words? Um, uh, be safe, wear your mask. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's, that's about it. Yeah, cool. Well, I appreciate you talking with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to, with me, too. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books, on my websites chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.